This is the Horse Radio Network. I'm Emily Esterson from Coverside Magazine, the magazine of mounted fox hunting. And I'm Tara Tibbetts from Fort Worth, Texas, and you're listening to the monthly fox hunting episode of Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for Thursday, May 21st, 2020, episode 2439. This episode is brought to you by Coverside Magazine. Good morning, Horse World. So this is our special once a month fox hunting episode. We come to you the third Thursday of each month. So if you want to catch up on all the interesting things happening in fox hunting, put it on your Google calendar or your Outlook calendar. We all have plenty of time to listen to podcasts these days. And coming up on today's show, we're hitting the history books and the books in general. Author Philip Smucker joins us to do some George Washington Spotting Equestrian Edition and National Sporting Library and Museum Librarian, say that three times fast, tells us about this incredible collection. Plus, she shares some of her favorites, which may surprise you. So, ladies, what you been up to? So, I, I know from my Facebook stalking and my social media stalking what Emily has been doing, and she has been doing a lot of writing and baking. Writing and baking. Baking. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, riding, baking. You know, that's that's my life. Ride horses, bake bread. Ride some more horses, bake some more bread. So we have been riding um, here uh, along the Rio Grande quite a bit uh, down in the river. And it is, we thought it might be really crowded with people, but um, we go early enough in the morning that we, you know, we only frighten one or two mountain bikers and a couple of hikers. We don't, you know, we don't get the full on like, you know, hiking, mountain biking craziness of being in the woods during a pandemic kind of thing. So um, it is kind of funny, though. A few weeks ago, we we uh, hauled up into the mountains um, up above New Albuquerque, and it's a trail that we go to a lot. And it's uh, it's a beautiful place. It's in the woods, and generally don't ever see anybody there. But the parking lot was packed with people oh. with cars. I was like, oh no! So, because New Mexico lot. stayed pretty locked down for a while, didn't it? Oh yeah, it's still pretty locked down. It is. Yep. Um, she just started to uh, reopen some things, and we have mandatory masks and just a are bit. they are is Cosula drone walking out hounds, or are they just kind of staying to themselves? They are um, walking hounds, but it's uh, if you want to come for a hound exercise, I think you have to actually uh, make a reservation because they're only allowing, you know, a small number of people to go. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's like staff and maybe two others. And yeah. so um, so that's so they're really being pretty limited about that. So. Which makes sense. I mean, where they're kennel just a little, you know, it can be kind of public over there. So I can see them being extra careful. Right. And also, you know, also there's the, the, you know, they don't want people to get hurt. Right. And, you know, they're, they're really kind of keeping it like for those of us who have to travel a little longer distances, they're really kind of discouraging those people from coming up um, just because, you know, they don't want to have to drive long ways and you know bad things yeah 
So, so anyway, so that's, what about you? What have you been up to? What have I been up to? Um, working quite a lot. I, I go to the office at least days a week because I'm an essential human at an essential business. And quite frankly, Texas is, <laughs> I think we're, I'm using finger quotes, leading the charge and reopening. Um, so things don't feel remarkably different for me other than the fact that uh, I'm avoiding being in crowds. So I've been riding at home pretty regularly and I've done a couple riding lessons at the barn that I've started taking lessons at and um, no horse. They had an open show at a big show facility a week or two ago and they're slated to have another one and I'm pretty sure it'll go off in June. So horse activities are definitely picking up and I don't really, I didn't have plans to show previously. Sadly, I should currently, as we speak, be driving home from Mile City for the Wild West extravaganza of fox hunting for the week uh, with um, Big Sky Hounds and Red Rock Hounds and then going to the bucking horse sale on the weekend. But all that got canceled. I've heard rumblings that the... Fox hunting, um, wild West extravaganza, they might be a go in mile city this fall. So I'll kind of try to keep my ear to that to see if it's going to happen. If it does, I intend to go just because I'm sad to miss it and I would be happy to go see my mother. So kind of excited about that, but just, I, I, I haven't decided if this was a good idea or a bad idea yet, but I pulled Simon's shoes off. I guess when all this started, so in mid-March, and I have these hopes and dreams that he's got beautiful feet, but I have hopes and dreams that someday he could be a barefoot horse, and I just don't think it's going to happen because he walks around out. It's pretty rocky where where I live, and he walks around out there, and he looks like a barefoot person walking across a bed of glass. So <laughs> I, I think, don't know the barefoot thing and uh, fox hunting. I don't know if those two things are... Yeah, uh, I mean, really good for each other. <laughs> well, especially, yeah, I, I would always keep him probably shod for fox hunting, but I was kind of hoping we could make it through this, like, do summers or something uh, without shoes on. Um, Jaguar went unshod the majority of his adult life after he quit raining because he didn't need side plates anymore, but as he got older, he got a little more sensitive. So I think I'm going to have to put shoes back on my friend Simon, which is fine. Mm. But so we're just plugging along going there's you know I've made so many friends from my little fox hunting trips around to Montana and Nebraska and Kansas and whatnot and so a few of us have been in communication about going to some like camping trail ride weekends this summer and such so I'm looking forward to maybe doing that so some um some of the hunt clubs you know the Montana um fox hunting event is not alone but a lot of hunt clubs had to cancel their fundraisers, which yes. usually happen in the springtime. And so a lot of them, um, ha- you know, the hunter paces and point to points and, you know, auctions and fundraising events. And, and so, you know, sadly, a lot of hunts had to, had to cancel those things. So um, we've been doing some online um, auction stuff on MFHA's social media page um, for things like hunt trips and, and uh, we do that, you know, every couple of weeks, we'll put something up there. So, um, so that's kind of a fun way to support your local hunt club is to, 
to go online and buy something cool at an auction. So, um, so that's, you know, that's one of the things that we've been doing to try to help some hunt clubs weather the storm. Of, yeah, it's, it's definitely been, yeah, been a, a, a challenge. And, you know, you look at a lot of the hunts online and, you know, the huntsmen and, and kennelman staff, if they have it, are, you know, walking out hounds by themselves and being mindful of the, the rules where they live. And it's just hard because fox hunting is such a social of activity. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It really, it really thrives on this sort of, um, you know, group gatherings, uh, a lot of times, even though you're on horseback, it's, there's definitely the group gathering element of it. So, but you know, you can be on a, we're hoping that this fall season everything, you know, opens up and people can kind of resume at least, um, at least hunting, if not, if not the social, um, gathering part of it, because right. you know, you aren't, you're still on horseback and you're still supposed to be a horse's length away from the person in front of you in theory. So, right. You know. And moving at speed. So hopefully and, if, if someone is spewing any Corona ness that, it, you know, you're outside. Yeah. So, yep. It's definitely improves your chances of not getting it than being in an enclosed room with a bunch of people, you know, so. I did see that there's a, and I haven't clicked on it to see how much veracity there is to it, but there's an article going around on Facebook that it's, the likelihood is extremely low, almost non-existent to get Corona while riding a horse. So I thought it was kind of funny that somebody had put any effort into that research so far. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Yeah. So the term of the month, I, I was looking through our list of terms and this is not, it's something, it's something we talk about all the time, but we've never actually definitively defined what it is and the term of the month is hound which is a foxhound or recognized breed of dog used in fox hunting and fox hunters generally never call the hounds dogs and i think i know when i started went to my first couple of hunts that that was definitely a big differentiator of who was a fox hunter and who was a guest or a newcomer is to know to not call them dogs was that right. your experience emily yeah, so you call you can call a male hound a dog hound, right? That's a male hound, and a female yep. hound is bitch. And but yes, if you say the pack of dogs, you will be looked at askance. You cannot use that word. You have to know that they are hounds and not dogs. So, um, so you can call the males hound uh, dog hounds, and you can call the female bitches, and you can call the pack hounds that is correct yes and there's you know i don't know maybe eventually we'll get into the more de nitty-gritty details of it but you know there's they're foxhounds but there are different variety of foxhounds in terms of american foxhounds and english foxhounds and pen marydales and i'm probably forgetting something that is going cross to be breads. yeah crossbred so there's different and my hunt is pretty involved with showing American foxhounds and a few crossbreds here and there. Um, and I, I feel like Emily, Jen, maybe we'll know this too. The Americans tend to be bigger than the English is, or is it the opposite? Uh, yeah, that's true. Um, they, the American hounds tend to be a little longer legged. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, uh, I, the only time I get to see them is in beautiful pictures in Covered Side magazine and on, <laughs> on Facebook. But plug. Yeah. <laughs> it, plug. There you go. 
But yeah, English foxhounds to me always looked just a little chunkier, warm bloodish versus yeah. the Americans, which were maybe more thoroughbredish. Yeah. It is. Well, yeah. and the main thing to know about hounds too is you may see an American hound in Virginia and you may see an American hound in Nevada or California. And really the hounds at each hunt are very much bred for the terrain and the quarry of the geography where they are hunting. Yeah. This is, yeah. This is correct. I have, in I fact, have an important foxhound question. Go ahead and finish your thought. Oh, well, I was just going to say, you know, in the upcoming issue of Coverside, we interviewed um, a woman named Claire Bouchy Anderson, who is French and she's the master of a hunt, uh, the huntsman for a hunt in California. And she um, she has brought in the Blanc et Noir hounds for her country. And it's a super interesting story. And the hounds are just beautiful. And she says exactly that in the story. She's like, you have to breed for your country. You have yeah. to breed for your country, even if that means bringing in hounds that um, that are, you know, an offshoot something else so um and so she's got french hounds in her pack hmm. it's very very cool do they so. do they uh have an accent when they bark <laughs> they sure do, they sure do. <laughs> I, have an, I have an important foxhound question okay you piqued my interest now one of the few places i get to see foxhounds is when i watch the national dog show which they had a national dog show marathon on animal planet a few weeks back <laughs> I, I love the national dog show yeah, and i'm always disappointed because the foxhound doesn't win but are <laughs> he has he has one in the past there. oh yay that's good to hear I'll yeah look up when that was trivia an akc foxhound is are are the stud books overlapping separate um unique? i'm gonna guess not at all uh they're, sep- they're separate they're separate um separate are they mutually stud- exclusive no, um, they are not. And so they're, I believe, and I, I am not factually um, checking this, but I believe <laughs> that the woman who, that the foxhound that did win some big dog show a few years back um, came from a woman who was also a fox hunter. So yeah, that's um, awesome. the, the foxhounds, the foxhounds that are registered with AKC are, not necessarily um, fox hunting foxhounds, but they can be. There's nothing that says they can't be. And the same is true vice versa. So um, so those are those are two things. You know, I don't know that they are you can't be registered with one and not with the other. I think you can be cross registered. It doesn't okay, so there's they, nothing that precludes you from so being over, registered. There there's overlap, but they're not mutually exclusive, nor are they one and the same. That's see, right. I always wondered about that because different yeah. breeds of dogs, they work differently. Huh. Well, on this the MFHA stud book is really um uh, useful for people who are breeding packs of foxhounds for hunting because you want to know, you know, what kind of bloodlines you have so you're not crossing over, you know, overbreeding a bloodline. Um, same same reason you have AKC, but, you know, foxhound packs tend to be, um, you know, that when you are the master of a hunt and you're thinking, oh, I really like that hound I saw at the Virginia Hound Show, you're going to get that hound's name and you're going to look it up in the stud book and see who else has hounds from that particular bloodline. Um, and, and was that a good hunter? 
form function, you know, they might look great on the boards, as they say in the foxhound world, um, but do they hunt? So that's part of the whole networking for a good pack. And, you know, in the foxhound tradition, factoid, um, they don't actually buy and sell hounds. It's more of a drafting trading situation, right? Yep. So, yep. Um, so Tara ha- might have a great hound that I've seen hunting when I visited her pack. And so I might have a litter of puppies. And so we would execute a little trade. So that's how that works. Well, it's, I, I believe I've heard that selling them is actually prohibited. I think it is, yes. Perhaps. Because mm-hmm. I my farrier was over a week or so ago, and I I had my hound, Red Rock Linda, was out helping. And he was just fascinated because she's so sweet, and she's so calm, and she's so just easy. And he's like, well, how do you get a foxhound? And I was like, well... You kind of have to get it from a fox hunt. <laughs> yeah. And well, you can you can definitely get them though. They're available for adoption. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. It's just you can't go to the pound or yeah. You know, I, you could kind of to an extent, I guess, go to AKC and perhaps find a breeder, but I, I don't. They're not really prolific. Yeah, you're not going to find a. Uh, you're not going to be able to Google fox hunt foxhound breeders. Right. And come up with 150 hits like you would if you typed in. Labrador Retriever, right? Yeah. I, th- I find it interesting that in the fox hunting community, in the working foxhounds, where foxhounds are doing what they're, they were designed to do, that buying and selling them is not something that is done. It's, it's a very different cultural point of view, and I, I kind of like it. Well, and uh, I think... I feel like somebody talked about this on one of the episodes, maybe, and Emily, you'll probably know more about it than I do, but uh, my understanding is that that was implemented so that it didn't become a, you know, back in Washington, George Washington's day, as we'll be talking more about later with Philip, um, they didn't want it to be he with the biggest bank account had the best pack of hounds. They wanted it to be a little bit more equitable. Yeah, I think that has a lot to do with it. And, it, you know, and it's evolved as part of the culture of fox, hound, of fox hunting. That is part of the culture. Um, you know, when you go to a, when you watch a dog show um, and, you know, the terrier wins or the um, poodle wins because the poodle always has a fancy haircut. That's why it mm-hmm. wins all the time. Um, but they, they, you know, that the spike in, that dog sales of those dogs through reputable AKC breeders goes up. Right. Right. Um, well, when, th- when you go to a, a hound show, like one that should be happening this coming weekend in Virginia, yes. which sadly is not happening. Yep. Um, when you go to a hound show like that, it's a big networking event where all the masters are there and, a, and the huntsmen and the staff and field members, and they all, watch the hounds and they talk about the hounds and they talk about who hunts and that one's beautiful and does it hunt. And I'm looking for something with longer legs because my country's changed. And, and so it's a really a big sort of networking event to, for people to get to know everybody else's hounds so that then they can later on figure out what they need and, and talk about it with somebody else. So what, Hey, I saw, you know, Sedgefield, you know, X, Y, Z at the hound show. And I really liked him and I think he could do well in my pack. And, you know, do you have any offspring from him? So 
that's how it that's how it works. It's really part of the culture and and a good one, I think. Really good. No, so. I think it's delightful. Yeah. Yeah. I really miss, you know, I really miss. In fact, my ca- I just got a calendar notification this morning, you know, that said your flight to Virginia leaves in 24 hours. Aww. And I'm like, oh, I'm not going to Virginia. <laughs> Big bummer. Yeah. Big bummer. So speaking of Virginia not happening, um, there are things happening. So what what's coming up in the next cover site issue? Well, we do have that great story about Claire Bouchy Anderson and her French hounds, the Blanc et Noir. And um, we have some art coming up. We have some really nice um, featured artists. We have three artists who are just kind of popping into the scene and some beautiful images of their work in the magazine. So highly recommend um, you picking that up and uh, and having a look at it because you know, there's some great, great art in there. And um, of course, we have the story about the fox hunting daughters, which we talked to Kaylin he last, um, last episode or the episode? Two episodes. Before? Yeah, two episodes. So Kaylin's, Kaylin's featured in as well as um, Sloan Coles, who, if you are a fan of reality TV, you might remember Sloan from the brief run of that uh, reality TV show about the Hunter Jumper world, which I can't remember. Yeah, they followed, they followed the oh. invitation finals. Yeah, was Sloan fun. was on that. that. Yeah, Sloan was one of the writers on that. And now, and she was, she grew up as a fox hunter. So she's featured in, um, in the upcoming issue as well. Oh, that's well. kind of fun. Yeah, very fun, very fun. And I didn't make the connection. I watched that show and I really liked it. And I didn't make the connection until um, until the writer who was working on the story reminded me of that. She's like, did you ever see that reality TV show? And I was like, oh yeah, her. <laughs> so anyway, so that's good. Her dad is the uh, master of the Orange County hunt that's in the Middleburg area. So yeah, definitely one of the... Yeah. Fancier ones. Yeah. And I don't know what's coming up in the fall issue. I just started planning that one. So I'll let you know when I've got it figured out. Excellent. Yeah. Lots of good stuff. Lots of good stuff. So I guess that brings us next to we get to chat with Philip Smucker. Right. He is the author of a book called Writing with George, which came out a couple of years ago. And it's a good time to pick up a book on a hot summer afternoon when you can't go out and party with your friends. And Philip has an interesting background. He's got a lot of history. Yeah. I'm excited to to chat with him more about just, I think, you know, it's an interesting book. I read it last winter when I was living in my barn and just an interesting story, just, you know, both fox hunting and riding in general and just kind of the habits and whatnot of George Washington that made him seem more like a human to me. So, yeah. Yeah, he so really pers- much, he's so much more than just the guy in the quarter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a famous painting of George Washington hunting hounds, um, which of course I've seen a million times, and I can't remember what museum it's actually in, but it's it's in New York somewhere, and uh, and that's whenever I picture George Washington, that's the picture I have in my head of him hunting the hounds. We welcome Philip Smucker, who is an author and a journalist who has uh, completed a book called Riding with George. And so we wanted to talk to Philip today about George Washington and 
his relationship to fox hunting. So welcome, Philip. Well, thank you. So tell us how you came upon this uh, this subject matter. I think it's super interesting. Well, I have a family connection because it was my great-great-grandfather, John Augustine Washington, who sold Mount Vernon in 1858. And I live right down the road in Alexandria, Virginia. And I was thinking about how you could tell a new story about George Washington. And I read all the biographies and I recognized the thread in those biographies about his, his, his special talents on horse, on horseback, as well as his, his love for hunting and his love for uh, athletic prowess, which also, of course, naturally because of his military command, it, it, it translated well into the ba- onto the battlefield and what he did as a leader, uh, riding both in the French and Indian War as well as in the uh, in the Revolution. So, what is the fox hunting connection? Talk about that a little bit. <clears throat> George Washington started fox hunting at a very young age. Uh, he was his father died at the age of eleven, and he spent a lot of time at Mount Vernon with his half brother Lawrence and Lawrence was married to Anne Fairfax and Lord Fairfax was a big fox hunter had brought over his hounds from England. Uh, he actually, uh, kept, uh, a hunting lodge out in the Shenandoah Valley and George Washington started hunting at a very young age, uh, 15, 16, probably, uh, with his brother Lawrence and the Fairfax family. So wasn't Lord Fairfax the first person to bring hounds over from England? Am I right in that? There, there, were, there were a couple others. Uh, there, uh, the timing, uh, I think, was a little earlier for uh, a set of hounds that went to Maryland. So in Virginia, of course, we're very jealous of that fact. But in, <laughs> in truth, uh, uh, Lord Fairfax was was really uh, a classic uh, British sportsman in that that's all he liked to do. He liked to hunt. He, he was endowed with five million acres, if you can imagine, in the northern neck, which extended into the Shenandoah Valley. And he spent all his time out in Greenway Court uh, hunting stag and hunting fox. And he would take George along all the time, uh, even when George was a surveyor also in his early and late teens, rather. So on the um, process of researching the book, who did you talk to besides, um, besides your, your clear study of family history and, and published history, who else did you talk to about George Washington and fox hunting? Well, we have great resources, of course, uh, in the Shenandoah Valley, uh, Masters of the Fox Hounds Association, so I spoke in depth with uh, a lot of hunters and I learned to, to hunt myself. I can say that I'm, I'm an amateur uh, fox hunter and I, I'm really not very good at it. But uh, it, was, it was quite an experience to go out in the field with uh, some of the groups and some of the, you know, the hunts and, and really learned that this is a sport that hasn't changed very much from Washington's day. That is true. Who did you hunt with? I hunted uh, with the uh, Blue Ridge uh, as well as uh, 
Colonel, Colonel Foster, who was at that point, uh, the head of the masters of the Fox Sounds association. Uh, he was the, uh, executive director, uh, if I'm correct, uh, that was his title. And, uh, he actually was, uh, a quite, quite a mentor in terms of, uh, talking to me about, uh, what was involved in, uh, in the hunt and, uh, the kind of the, the affection that the, the hunters have for nature, uh, because it's gone a long way t- towards saving stretches of the Shenandoah Valley where George Washington uh, used to hunt himself and his brothers would hunt. So, so you hunted with the Blue Ridge and, and got to meet Colonel Foster and got sort of involved in fox hunting uh, culture. How did that inform the writing of the book? as far as the sort of the detail more, more than the history? Well, my entire book is uh, taking on uh, these sports. Uh, the primary, most important uh, sport was the uh, equestrian prowess of George Washington. So I did the dance and I did the, the hunting. Uh, essentially, I was doing and telling it was kind of like the old uh, new journalism uh, when you know the kind of stuff i grew up on in graduate school uh, by tom wolf and george plimpton if you remember the name uh, mm-hmm. who wrote about sports by actually participating in them so i tried to kind of walk in the the the, the footsteps of george ride in the in in his saddle if you will and experience what he would have uh, as a young man. Now that's very difficult because I was already over 50. So, uh, (laughs) but the bottom line is there are a lot of places you can go and it's not, it's not George slept here, but George rode here and you can see the places where he, you know, the, uh, the runs where he, uh, would hunt the foxes. He often went, he would go out in the morning, uh, to to his five uh satellite plantations around mount vernon and if he if his hound caught the, the scent of a fox he'd go off for two three hours four or five hours sometimes hunting fox in the in the vicinity so this is right around the corner from me and i really uh i can look down the potomac and almost see his uh his old hunting ground had you <laughs> ridden much before doing that yeah you know i <clears throat> i started riding as a young as a young man. Uh, but I, I was, uh, kind of a very, you know, amateur, I would ride here, ride there. And then I had a couple of horses actually, uh, when I was a professor, uh, of, of journalism in Afghanistan, and that was pretty wild place to have horses. They play a sport there, uh, which is, is kind of like a polo with, uh, the carcass of a goat and you have to pick up the carcass of the goat and run with it. And I tried that once. Uh, but I, I just enjoyed riding horses and it, it was always a pleasure to, to, you know, to, to look at the history of, uh, of horses and equestrianship, uh, and, and, and to see it around the world, in fact. So when you started writing the book, were you very familiar with fox hunting or was it kind of a completely new thing to you or kind of what was your knowledge base there? Well, when I started research the book, uh, I had I had friends out in Middleburg, Virginia, and if anybody knows 
Middleburg, Virginia. It's kind of the mecca for fox hunters in, in on the East Coast. And I had friends out there, and I, I, you know, they're kind of drinking buddies, frankly, mostly. And I would occasionally ride with friends, and then they said, "Well, you know, you should come on and learn, learn, learn a little bit about the fox hunting." Well, you know, as a journalist, uh, I wanted to to go right to the to the expertise, and I so I, I found uh, Colonel Dennis Foster, who now lives out. He's, uh, I believe, retired. He's out in Montana, uh, and and he could kind of tell me what was appropriate and what wasn't. Uh, now, he, here's an example. Uh, when George Washington was riding with Lord Fairfax, uh, Lord Lord Fairfax was uh, quite the comedian, and uh, you know, once he he actually had a fox and he bagged it, and he took it to the front porch of Mount Vernon to scare the ladies, and you know, he let it out of the bag. <laughs> The, the bottom line is I was able to kind of discern, uh, you know, how the, the sport has evolved and what was similar. And I will say that uh, the similarities were much greater than the differences between the 18th century and the 21st century. What were, so one, cool. what were some of the most surprising similarities that, are, that we're still practicing today? <clears throat> well, I think the master, the hunt, the, uh, the kind of leadership, uh, and Colonel Dennis Foster would argue that there's a kind of a, even a military element in terms of leadership uh, in in the whole structure of a fox hunt. Uh, in other words, uh, uh, the hunters themselves are attached to a, a kind of a, a protocol, uh, which is is it's, it's not authoritarian, but it's 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 about leadership. It's about knowing the right uh, moment to charge, uh, knowing the moment. Uh, to move to outflank the fox, uh, and 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 the, these historical parallels are really fascinating. If you if, and George Washington at the Battle of Princeton was up against a British colonel that had a couple uh, terriers at his side, and uh, they were fighting toe to toe. And Washington went up on the front lines to inspire his troops and did an, uh, a levade. In, in other words, he r- rose his horse up. Uh, he raised its front legs up. And, and kind of in, in, a, in a gesture of, uh, of to to inspire the troops, and and they performed quite well. They they turned on the British, and the uh, uh, the, the British cut and ran. And at that moment, uh, crucially, maybe one of the most important battles in the Battle of Princeton, uh, Washington said to his troops, he said, "It's a fine fox hunt, my boys, and you know chase them down." So he was after them. And they had to restrain him <laughs> to to keep him from uh, you know continuing the charge against the British. But he was thinking in that mode. He was thinking like a fox hunter when he was a commander in chief. So it's important to recognize the similarities. I think you know that there's a you know in the British uh, military there's, there's even a connection. They wanted the young cavalry officers to learn how to hunt because it would aid them on the battlefield. Right, and the same is true in the U.S. You know, there is a c- cavalry tradition of fox hunting. Um, you know, at, at, in the Fort Leavenworth and um, and some other, you know, some other military posts where they had active fox hunts to train soldiers to to you know to think that way. So there there's the connection in this country as well. So and in um, the Olympic sports as well, because in the Olympic sports. Uh, uh, in the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, well into the 20th century, the only people really competing in those were 
of military backgrounds from all around the world. So yes, uh, a strong connection. And you think of the steeplechase similar to, you know, a long fox hunt. Uh, and so that evolved in the same way, you know, you're running from village to village and you're, you're hunting and, uh, and those, those sports kind of have a, a parallel. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Tara has another question before we wrap it up. So, Having spent the time doing the research and then actually going out hunting and whatnot, have you continued to hunt at all? Is, did it did it capture your attention, or is it just kind of something you maybe you know did for the book and then you've kind of moved on? Actually, I did uh, the last three years in Afghanistan uh, for the United Nations, and I had to come back uh, to take care of my elder elderly parents. They're ninety two, ninety five, and they're kind of locked into an old folks home right next door and here in Alexandria. So I'm back and I'm ready to hunt. So I'm waiting for the next, I'm waiting for that phone call, but I, I expect to go out to Middleburg and have a drink and then, and ask around as well. So. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that you'll continue hunting. Yep. Me too. Thanks so much for spending this time with us, Philip, and tell us how people can find your book if they want to read it. Oh, uh, very easy to find. Uh, I have a website, and uh, actually my Facebook page is more popular. Uh, so if you look me up, Philip Smucker, uh, S-M-U-C-K-E-R, you'll see uh, that I also have a Facebook page for the book, Riding with George, and that uh, the book is sold and it's available on Amazon.com. So you can get it in Kindle or you can get it in uh you can get in uh, hardback, and I have a lot of hardback myself. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, at one point uh, I advertised in uh, in the, uh, your magazine, uh, Covert Side, and I I, I said that uh, uh, I'd be happy to send a signed copy. So if you want a signed copy, you can certainly uh, write to me in 108 North Quaker Lane, Alexandria, Virginia, 22304. And, you know, 20 bucks gets you a signed copy. I'll send you the copy to the designated address. And uh, so that that's one way. But also Amazon, uh, obviously, is, is just as fast and efficient. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. And Yes, that was wonderful. We look forward to seeing you in the fox hunting field in the fall. And speaking of being out in the field, let's enjoy a little Kristen Harris with Endless Sky. And then we'll be back with our next guest.
Kristen Harris with Endless Sky. You can find her music and lots more stuff about her. She's a horse girl at KristenHarris.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-Y-N Harris.com. You can also find her music on Spotify and other streaming services. And it's time for our next guest. So we have with us today Erica Libhart from the National Sporting Library and Museum in Middleburg, Virginia. And we wanted to chat with Erica about the library collection, since the theme of this week's episode seems to be books and reading and that kind of thing. And um, I have been there to the museum and the library and gotten a a tour. This was, of course, pre-COVID. And so I thought it would be fun to hear a little bit for our listeners about this sort of gem in, in Middleburg, Virginia. So, Erica, tell us about the library and what kind of things you have in your collection. Um, well, the library was established in 1954 by four fox hunters, um, and we've grown since then, um, continual donations from the community, so it ends up being a really neat reflection of the people that support us. Um, you mentioned you were on one of our rare book tours, so you probably saw the Teddy Roosevelt uh, manuscript that we have about fox hunting. It's called Riding to Hounds on Long Island. Yes, I did um, see that now that you mention it. it really, I recall it, yeah. <laughs> so Go that's ahead. one of our yeah. more unique items because it's a manuscript. I mean, eventually it was published in uh, the magazines called The Century Illustrated uh, in 1886. But we have his, basically it looks like rolled notebook paper uh, with his handwritten draft of the document. And it's a lot of fun to show that because most uh, kids and really even a lot of adults don't remember um, writing things longhand, how you can see the editing process that goes on. Um, there's lots of crossing out and rewording. Um, you know, spell check is not in- available to Teddy. Um, so it's a lot of fun to look at the document that way. But um, he's also talking about hunting and defending it from people that thought it was too British and Americans shouldn't be involved in this British sport. So um, the... Tell us how people can use the library under normal circumstances. Like what what um, what do people use it for? Who comes and looks through the collections, and how does that work? Um, we are open and it's free um, Wednesday through Sunday to the public. So anything in the main reading room, people can come in without an appointment and do their research or their browsing. Um, in addition to the main uh, book collections. 
there's also our current um, active magazine subscriptions. So we have a couple people that come um, regularly, like once a month, and they sit for an afternoon and read through all the magazines that they're interested in that we have. Um, beyond the main reading room, most things you need an appointment. We offer tours of the library in the rare book room. Um, those are generally free. It's just, you know, we need to know that you're coming. If you want to do research in the archive collections or the rare book room or historical periodicals, we just need to know ahead of time because those are housed in the basement of the library, um, which is not generally open to the public. Um, again, we're happy to have, I'd love to see the collection get used. It's just a matter of having the staff available to get the things for you. So an appointment is always a good idea. But beyond the regular library sorts of things, um, we have lectures pretty often, a whole lecture series. We do special tours. We did a night at the library tour last year that was uh, sort of a behind-the-scenes look at some pieces that we don't normally get to show for a variety of reasons. Um, there's workshops with artists that are sometimes held in the library, and sometimes we have children's activities, too. The one thing the library doesn't do, though, is circulate books. You have to use our books on-site. Um, we will interlibrary loan to other libraries, but you would then have to use the, the book at that library site. We don't let people take our books home. Mm -hmm. So who were the four fox hunters that started the library? Do you know? It was, yes, mm -hmm. it was George L. Orstrom Sr., Alexander McKay Smith, Lester Caro, and Fletcher Harper. Yeah, a couple of those names are probably pretty yeah. familiar to some of our listeners. Um, I'm sure they and, are, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, Ostrom, was was he the founder of Chronicle of the Horse? I believe he was. I don't um, know. Yeah, I think he was, or his family was involved in it, because I know... I know they were, um, that name was associated with the Chronicle ownership for a long time, up until about maybe 10 years ago. So, mm -hmm. And for um, a long time, the library was associated with the Chronicle as well. They shared uh, building space. Most right, Ex exactly, exactly. So what other sort of fox hunting gems do you have in the collection? We have a set of books called The Story of American Fox Hunting by Van Erk. Um, it's published by the Derrydale Press. Um, the first two volumes were 1940 and 1941, and it's sort of the definitive uh, book on basically North American fox hunting. I mean, it says American, but he has Canada and America in there, um, where he goes through and identifies the hunts and writes their histories. Um, it's actually a fabulous set. Anyway, there were supposed to be additional volumes that were never published, and the NSLM holds a manuscript collection for volume three. It's about 370 pages um, and includes all sorts of notes and drafts, um, hunt histories. I think there's about 15 or 20 folders on different hunts, um, including a lot of the local hunts. So there's Middleburg, um, I think Loudoun County's in there, Warrington, and Orange County too. Um, so that's a pretty so unique thing. So can someone go in have. and look at it? Yes, if you make an appointment with me, I'd be happy to get it out, and you could sit at a table downstairs and take a look at it. That's so cool. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's I when I did the tour a few years back um, of the rare book room, I I was like, we have to leave now. I really wanted to sit in there and just look at stuff all day because it was just fascinating. Um, I remember seeing 
a book and I went back through my notes to see if I could find the name of it, but it was beautiful plates of fox hunting, like art, you know, and drawings. Um, And some were pencil drawings and some were, were colored in and, and it was very sort of someone's um, someone's, you know, doodlings really, but very artistic doodlings about fox hunting. I thought it was fascinating. Um, Well, and, and I'm curious with the, the the sporting library, like, is there a list of books that that are not in the collection that you're constantly trying to find, or what's the curation process, and how frequently are you adding to the collection? We've just so I've been there for a little bit over four years, and I was hired to catalog the collection and bring it up to speed so that access was improved. Um, so that was recataloging the whole collection applying a classification system, labels, barcodes, the whole nine yards. And so we finally wrapped that up last year. Um, and we're getting to the point now where like, we know really well what we have. And so now we're starting to look at maybe um, making some acquisitions in the future, plugging some holes, that sort of thing. It is a little bit of a challenge because they hired both myself and the other librarian because of our uh, librarian expertise. Uh, neither one of us are sporting people uh, you know, we don't have that background. So it's been a pretty steep learning curve coming in, but that's one of the really great things about the community. Like I'm giving a rare book tour. People are always happy to, it, it's more of a conversation, right? You have this, because most of the people that come to see us are very knowledgeable about their section of the sport. Um, and I tend to learn quite a bit um, from the community when we do these tours and things. So it's a little bit of a challenge to choose um, targets I think we are going to work with a couple rare book dealers and, and say that we're serious. Would you look at our collection? Because now we have the catalog available um, and see if they can make some suggestions. Also, there is a library committee on on the board, um, and they will also uh, help us choose some targets. And uh, we, we hope to add uh, some books in the future. How big is the collection currently? Uh, we're just over 20,000 books, and then the periodicals are only by title, so I couldn't tell you how many yeah. numbers of periodicals. So do you have a favorite item in the rare book collection, personal favorite? Uh, right now, it kind of changes as you go, because you're always discovering new and amazing things. But right now, my current favorite is this book called The History of Four-Footed Beasts by Edward Topsell from 1607. Hmm. And it's a crazy book. We have it because it's got about a 300-page section on horses, and it's all about how to care for them, how to train them, how to train riders, that sort of thing. So it's very much in line with the rest of the collection, but I love it because it's just... Ed was a, an archival researcher. He did not go out in the field and and view the animals himself or gather the data himself. He goes around and just compiles it from other people's work. Um, So it leads to some interesting entries on animals, uh, and it's got beautiful woodblock prints in it. Um, It's a lot of fun. There's an animal he calls the camel leopard, and (laughs) when I ask kids what they think this is, because they know what the animal is, he just, Edward didn't have a word for it. Um, they usually get it pretty quickly. It's a camp or it's a, a giraffe. Oh, so it's huh, the spot from the leopard and the neck from the, the camel. Um, 
So, you know, it, it's just, it's a lot of fun. There's monsters in that book. There's a unicorn. It's a lengthy section on unicorns. So according to these guys, they once were all over the place. So it's just a lot <laughs> of fun. I the Harry Potter spinoff movie of the Fantastic Beasts or whatever it's called. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's a lot of fun. And the illustrations are beautiful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So do you know what the oldest item in the collection is? Uh, it's a book on dueling from 1523. Okay. <laughs> an Italian book. A librarian I used to work with called it Organized Manslaughter. <laughs> but we also have a 1528 veterinary book. Um, there's actually quite a few books from the 16th century in the collection. That's really interesting. You're in a you're in a great great area for um for for fox hunting knowledge. Um, mm-hmm. So. <laughs> You well, know, so my I mean, question then is, is if they talked you into going out to any hunts at all. Have you have they gotten you on a horse yet? <laughs> no, they have not gotten me on a horse yet. I have gone to the Virginia Hound Show, um, and okay. a friend of mine takes care of the hounds for Snickersville, so I've been out to the kennels um, there, but I have not joined them on the hunt. Mm. Well, that's the next step. You know, you can't live in Middleburg and, and not... Uh, and not have have a connection to hunting other than a really deep connection through the sporting library. <laughs> um, yeah, especially having read all of that, and you know, I think it would be fascinating and interesting to be. You know, I grew up with horses and riding, and just you know, I always think it's interesting when someone comes to the sport of riding a, of any kind with absolutely no knowledge of it. So I would think just like having read as much as you've read about it would be kind of interesting just to get your perspective, actually seeing it in person. So we have to have you come back after you've actually attended a hunt and see what you think. All right. That sounds like a plan. Yeah. So Erica, um, I know you're associated with the library, but I would love listeners to hear a little bit about the museum collection as well. Um, Can you speak to that a little bit? I can tell you what my favorites are in the museum collection. Sure, go for it. Um, we have my favorite is a Hazeltine sculpture called Rala, um, and I believe it's a three three quarter size, or maybe not, maybe half size. I don't know. It's a fairly large sculpture of a polo pony, um, but I love it because she is just putting out the attitude in, in her stance. <laughs> the ears are back, and she's just looking at you like, I don't know what you're doing with this, but I'm not interested. I want to go play polo. <laughs> it's, just, it's such a beautiful, it's got a beautiful color to it. Um, I don't know. I just, I, that's my favorite piece in the museum collection currently. Yeah. Yeah. I just um, I pulled it up. Your, your website is really robust and, and you're, you hit the nail on the head with her expression. It's very, it's very mare face is what I would say. Yeah. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, well, the, the, you know, having been to the both the museum and the um, and the library, I will tell listeners that once the world is open, they are both very well worth the visit. Um, so, if you're cruising around Northern Virginia and um, can stop in and see the the painting collection at the museum, has a lot of um, wonderful horse and hound and hunting. Uh, images in it and it's just really a great it's a great collection so um so i highly recommend it personally (laughs) so um 
Erica, tell us how people can um, reach the library. We've been pretty busy putting together some online things to try and stay connected to everybody. Um, our most recent, I just finished um, an angling exhibition that we are putting on in the lower level of the library. There's a little exhibit gallery down there. Um, we just put that online. I know that the curators have a couple um 3D tours of the museum available on our website as well. Uh, the website is nationalsporting.org, and you can see all our online things there, I believe. Um, I'm not sure when we're opening. We had like a two-hour-long meeting last week over the phone um, trying to sort out plans for reopening, you know, how, how we're going to handle things. Um, so I would imagine it's going to be late June until, I mean, unless, you know, something else happens, I, I guess we'll just see, have to, have to see how it develops. But until then, um, you can get in touch with us uh, via our emails. The staff emails are all on our website. Um, phone numbers as well, because even if you leave a message on my work phone, I will get the email about it and I can access it from home. Um, so I can talk to people that way. Uh, we have a blog that comes out every Tuesday. You can do comments on there or comments on our Facebook page. Um, I don't know. We're still here and we're still working pretty hard. So if you have a question, a reference question or anything like that, please feel free to email me at elubhart at nationalsporting.org or you can call us at 540-687-6542. That is uh, great. We really appreciate your time. I will say that um, we have occasionally reprinted blog items in CoverSide. Um, yes, from yeah, so um, so periodically you can find something from the National Sporting Library in our a little art section or our um, our art and culture section in the back of the magazine, and it's it's always been super popular and fun to to publish those. So we look forward to seeing you when the library opens up, Erica. Thank well, you. I look for your forward time. to seeing everybody else. I mean, come and take a tour. We'd love to show you around. Well, ladies, I think that's a wrap. Uh, you take care of wrapping up the show. I'm going to continue my virtual tour of the museum. See you later. You can find Coverside online at ecoveredside.net or the digital edition at issuu.com slash ecoveredside. Tara can be found at Instagram. Search for at TN Tibbets. Find the links to today's guests and the show notes at horsesinthemorning.com. You can follow Horses in the Morning on Facebook. Just search for Horses in the Morning. And you can have all of the Horse Radio Network shows with you wherever you go with our free app for iPhone and Android. Just go into your app store and search for the Horse Radio Network. We're very grateful to our sponsors for this episode, Coverside Magazine, the MFHA. Good night. Good night.